A reading from Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, this summer we have been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, pilgrim songs, songs sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem for the high holidays three times a year. Uh, These are songs that uh, invite us into a journey uh, to leave our old tired and cramped lives behind in pursuit of a richer and fuller and more spacious life with God at the center of it. And it's a journey that we make together. Uh, The theme of Psalm 122 is worship. We've arrived at Jerusalem. The tensions and perils of Psalms 120 and 121 are beginning to resolve. I was far from the holy city, but now I've arrived. I'm here. My feet could have slipped on that rugged, dangerous mountain pass, but now my feet are planted inside of Jerusalem's gates. The overwhelming mood of this psalm is one of deep wonder and gladness, awe and delight. We have arrived at our destination. Our longings are being fulfilled. One commentator uh, compares this psalm to a love poem because the author is so exuberant, he's, he's bubbling over. The act of worshiping God alongside of our brothers and sisters is incredibly liberating. It enlargens us. It gets us out of our narrow, cramped lives and into the wide open spaces of God's grace. This morning I want us to see from this song how worship does this, how it liberates and renews us. In particular, I want us to see five prisons that worship helps us to escape. The first prison is individualism. We meet with God together. We follow Jesus and seek his kingdom in community. Listen to the beginning. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Psalmist doesn't come alone. In fact, he was invited personally. He was part of a caravan that traveled and arrived together at their destination. When I was in high school, I got to go to Colorado every Labor Day weekend for a, a joyful servant leadership retreat with, uh, with my youth group. It was one of the highlights of my year. 
Uh, there was so much joy and energy when we arrived at the camp and, and tumbled out of our vehicles onto that holy ground. And we loved being in the mountains together. We loved having adventures together, but we also knew that we were going to meet God together. And because we were doing it together, because he was speaking to our hearts and, and shaping us together and calling us to greater heights, when we went home, we knew that that shared experience was one we could reflect on and remind each other of in the months ahead. Individualism is one of the primary ways that Christianity gets distorted in the modern West. We have a tendency to, to reduce the Christian life to me and Jesus. World Relief had a virtual gathering of church leaders this week. And one of the things that they talked about was their, uh, their regathering. And every church leader on the call, no matter how big or small their church was, or where in the country they were located, said that their in-person gatherings were at least 30% smaller than they were before the pandemic, and some much more smaller than that. And the leader said, look, some of our people have just stopped coming. But a lot of our people are just saying, yeah, it's just more convenient to worship from home. It's more convenient to worship in my pajamas, not have to leave the house. It's just me and Jesus. What's wrong with this? Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the people of God living under God's gracious leadership and rule together, living out heaven's norms and mores and forming a new society. Kingdoms are political units. They are inherently social. There is no kingdom of God without community, without people doing life together. Jesus and his church are inseparable. The church is the body of Christ. If you sever the head from the body, you've decapitated Jesus. The Christian life is a shared life. It draws us out of ourselves, out of our narrow perspectives and concerns, out of our self-reliance and self-righteousness, and into a community where we learn how to humble ourselves, where we learn how to listen to and depend on and serve and delight in other people. We go up together. We meet with God together. We learn how to follow Jesus together. We put his words into practice together. The temptation is to go it alone. The temptation is to opt for high-tech worship instead of high-touch worship. We're not together this morning, and that's unfortunate. There's been a lot of that. We've had to change the way we gather for a season. What shouldn't change is our desire to be together. YouTube is an accommodation. It's a tool. It's not a model for doing church or for living out the Christian life. We cannot allow ourselves to become content worshiping behind a screen in our homes because the Christian life is an embodied life. It's a shared life. It's a life that gets us out of ourselves and enlarges us. We cannot allow ourselves to value convenience over community. We cannot decapitate Jesus. 
God summons us into community, not to cramp our style, but for our joy. And yes, community is messy. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's demanding, but it's what we were created for. We're hardwired for it. To be a human being is to be a person in relationship. We can't thrive alone. Worship gathers us. It unites us with our fellow pilgrims, our traveling companions through life, our checks and balances, our guardrails, the ones who keep us honest, the ones who help us to see our blind spots. And they may not be perfect, but neither are we. Some of them can be hard to love, but sometimes we're hard to love. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. I was glad when I became we. I was glad when I realized I wasn't alone, that others were on the same journey as me. The first prison that worship helps us escape is individualism. The second is tribalism. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. See, these two verses work together. The first uh, verse, verse 3, describes the physical layout and design of the city. Eugene Peterson captures some of the nuances of the Hebrew really well. He says, all the pieces of masonry fit compactly. All the building stones fit harmoniously. There were no loose stones, no leftover pieces, no awkward gaps in the walls and towers. It was well-built, compactly built, skillfully built with unity with itself. And then he goes on to say about verse 4, what's true architecturally is also true socially. In worship, all the different tribes functioned as a single people in harmonious relationship. In worship, though we have come from different places out of various conditions, we are all after the same thing. Our quarrels and misunderstandings and differences pale into insignificance as the inner unity of what God builds in the act of worship is demonstrated. Israel was made up of 12 tribes. These 12 tribes, along with Jews from all over the world, would gather in Jerusalem three times a year. They didn't all speak the same language. They didn't all make the same living. They didn't all dress alike or eat alike, but when they assembled together, their tribal identities became relativized. Their differences paled in significance to the unity created by their common worship of Yahweh. One commentator writes, church is a tent big enough for all God's people. There are different tribes with different styles and tastes, but all gather for worship. Part of what worship does is it trains us to resist the natural human tribalism that makes us want to club together only with people like us. Church is bigger than that. It is God's house, not my faction's rallying point. God's word, not my theological axe to grind. The Lord's table, not my private dinner for my group. Worship releases us from our fear of the other. It erodes our suspicion. 
It liberates us from our desire to secure ourselves and perhaps our self-righteousness by keeping other perspectives and opinions at bay. Worship reminds us that there is objective truth that is far more important than our subjective opinions and preferences. Worship humbles us by forcing us to accommodate difference, to make room for those who see the world differently, but who nonetheless can see God's truth and beauty and goodness and are captivated by it just like we are. I went to an interdenominational Christian university, and after that I went to an interdenominational seminary. And one of the things that I heard over and over again in those years, in those places, and I believe this with all my heart, is that every part of the church has something to offer the other parts. And when we get together across ideological or theological or ecclesiastical or political or ethnic lines, we should rejoice because we get to open so many gifts. And these gifts should, should, should cause us to, 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 be, to bask in wonder because they, they enlarge our picture of God in his kingdom. They deepen our appreciation of his grace. Years ago, a, a member called me up and said, I'm, I'm not sure college church is the place for me. And I said, okay, help, help me to understand why, why you think that. And she said, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. So I said, tell me what the Holy Spirit means to you. And she did. She told me all about uh, her relationship with the Holy Spirit, how it impacts her day-to-day -day life, and it was just beautiful. And I said, wow, what you just described just now, I want everyone at College Church to have that. But guess what? If you leave, you'll take that insight, that passion, that testimony with you, and we'll be even more deprived of the witness of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you stay, because we need that gift. Worship liberates us from our tribal ways of thinking. It sets us free from the perspectival prisons that we create when we choose over and over again to only hang out with people who are just like us. Worship enlarges us. It helps us to see new facets of God's character, of God's truth, in large part because of who we're worshiping with. Worship liberates us from the prisons of individualism, tribalism, thirdly, self-absorption. Listen to verse 4 again. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. This is a little bit of a strange verse. It sounds like the psalmist is saying, we praise the name of the Lord because the law says so. Which kind of sounds like coercion, like someone's telling us what to do. This is not how we operate in the West. We are autonomous individuals. We do whatever we want. Nobody tells us what to do. That sounds like freedom, but it's actually the opposite of freedom. It's incredibly restrictive to only do what you want, to be limited by your feelings and preferences in any given moment. And this is why we find change to be so difficult, because in this worldview, we are always limited by what we want. 
So how do we get out? How do we change? The psalmist has found a way. He says, I praise God because the law says so, whether I feel like it or not. This is incredibly liberating. We don't have to be limited by our preferences. We don't have to be limited by our feelings in the moment. We don't feel our way into new action, but we can act our way into new affections. We can change by changing what we do. See, worship is an action that over time changes our affections. It changes our priorities. It changes what we value. How? By training us to recognize and respond to God's beauty. Worship is not a feeling that we act on. Worship is an action that we commit to that over time changes our affections. When we worship, God displaces us at the center of our imagination. Worship trains us to stop thinking of ourselves first. It sets us free from the tyranny of our own egos and awakens us to the presence of the one whose glory is greater than our own. So over time, worship enlarges us. It gives us passions and desires and aspirations beyond our own comfort and security. Passions and desires that can, that can stir us to delay gratification, keep our promises, take risks, make sacrifices, deny ourselves, put God and other people first. A great example of this transformation is the Apostle Paul. Before he met Jesus, Paul thought to himself, I have to protect my power and my influence at all costs because that's where I get my sense of self. And if that means I have to throw some innocent people in jail, so be it. But then one day he meets Jesus and soon after some of Jesus' followers and everything begins to change in Paul's life. He escapes from the prison of his own self, of his own ambition, of his need to preserve and justify himself at any cost. And Paul says, you know what? I will gladly give up everything. I will gladly give up my power and position, my popularity and influence, my comfort, my safety, everything. I'll give it all up for the sake of Jesus and the message of the gospel that he's entrusted me to share. What changed? He learned to worship. He became captivated by the truth and beauty and goodness of God. And as a result, his imagination began to center on Jesus instead of himself. But we only get there through worship. Worship liberates us from the prisons of individualism, tribalism, self-absorption. Fourthly, cynicism. Listen to verse 5. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Part of the psalmist's wonder and delight stems from the fact that Jerusalem is not only Israel's spiritual center, it's where people go to get justice. Now, if you've read any of the Old Testament at all, you know that this system from the very beginning was imperfect. And at times it was downright corrupt. It's easy, it's so easy to be cynical about religious traditions and authorities, especially when they fall short. Because when authorities and traditions fail, people get hurt. 
and they get hurt in God's name, which is doubly devastating. I've been talking with a woman who years ago uh, revealed to her church um, at that time that, that her father was abusive. And she said, I, I wasn't really expecting them to intervene or, or do anything. I just wanted to be heard and understood and for my experience to be validated. Instead, by and large, people defended her father and accused her of blowing things out of proportion. And that response really compounded the pain. And she eventually left her church. Tragically, this kind of thing happens all the time. Churches fail to give people their due, whether that's protection or validation or accountability. And I don't think that the author of this psalm is blind to this. He just refuses to become cynical. In fact, he's, he's just thrilled to be in the halls of justice, however imperfectly that justice is handed down, presumably because he knows how important these institutions and authorities are and the incredibly important role that God has given them to play. He knows the vulnerable and the oppressed who depend on these institutions and authorities. He knows how critical they are to Israel's shalom. Judgment is far from being our culture's favorite word. But judgment puts love into motion. Judgment protects. Judgment validates people's pain. Judgment provides accountability. There is no justice without judgment. This woman who told her church about her father's abuse, she said the problem wasn't a lack of love or a lack of grace or mercy. The problem in my case was a lack of judgment. I needed someone to say, this is wrong. This needs to stop. This can't continue. This family needs help. But that judgment never came. But then she goes on to say something very important. She says, I tell my story so that others will learn. So the same mistake won't be made again. So that people in similar circumstances can receive what they need. So that God's justice can move forward in people's lives. Now what I love about this woman's response to everything that's happened throughout all of this is that even though she's been hurt, even though she's been let down, even though those who should have listened to her and protect her failed to do so. And they failed to do so in God's name. She isn't cynical. She's hopeful. She's hopeful that others can learn from her experience and do better, which is why she shares her story. The fact that churches and pastors and ministries aren't perfect means we need critics. We need prophets. We need reformers. We need people to confront and repair and rebuild the institutions and structures that are broken and confront the authorities that are failing, both in society and in the church. We need critics. The difference between a critic and a cynic is hope. A critic may be unpopular, a prophet, a prophet may end up in a cistern, 
but at least they have the courage to speak up and address what's wrong in a way that hopefully leads to greater godliness and justice and love. But a cynic offers nothing. A cynic can, can point out faults and flaws, but they can't offer an alternative. And they won't lift a finger to improve the situation. Worship gives us a vision of God and of his kingdom that keeps us invested in our community even when it falls short, even when it lets us down. Worship gives us the hope and resilience to keep plowing into broken systems because it recognizes that there's something there that's worth reforming, that's worth repairing. Worship gives us the courage to confront error and brokenness and corruption. It gives us the energy to labor toward better ends because worship gives us a glimpse of a better world. It shows us what life can look like when people are truly submitted to Jesus and to one another. If you love Jesus, you might be disappointed at times. You might need to be a critic. You might need to confront some people. You might need to work for change, but cynicism is not an option. I say this as a member of Gen X who turns cynicism into a sport. It's not an option. Worship liberates us from the prisons of individualism, tribalism, self-absorption, cynicism, and finally escapism. Listen to the end of the psalm. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Worship is not escape from the world. Rather, it leads to even deeper engagement within it. When the pilgrim arrives in Jerusalem, he is compelled to pray for its peace, its shalom. Shalom is, is a rich word that describes interconnectedness and harmony. Uh, a world in which all the pieces fit snugly and tightly together like threads in a fabric. Worship gives him a, a powerful desire to see all of Jerusalem flourish, for its citizens to prosper and to live in harmony with God and with each other and with all of nature. But it's not all thoughts and prayers. He gets his hands dirty too. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. This is intercessory prayer. This is prayer with your hands dirty Prayer with your whole being engaged, working for the good, the shalom, of the object of your prayer. This is where worship explodes out of the Sunday morning box and provides a framework for our lives 24-7. True worship moves us to invest in relationships, service, reconciliation, peacemaking, bridge building, Shalom, this vision of a world put to rights by Jesus becomes the goal of our lives. Not just for ourselves or our tribe, but for all people, for all creation. Eugene Peterson says, worship doesn't satisfy our hunger for God. It only whets our appetite. 
True worship causes our relationship with God and his people to explode beyond our gatherings until God's character and purposes impact every nook and cranny of our lives. There's that famous critique that people who believe in heaven are no earthly good, presumably because they can't wait to escape this world for a better one. But in the Christian story, heaven comes down. God's space and our space overlap. They become one. And so C.S. Lewis critiques the critique. He says, actually, the opposite is true. People whose hearts have been so captured by a vision of heaven and earth coming together end up working tirelessly to colonize the earthly city with the heavenly city, to bring the future into the present. And so, so many of the Christians that I know are deeply invested in this world, deeply invested in their communities. They're some of the most generous and selfless and helpful people that I know. They're feeding the hungry and serving the poor and visiting the lonely and adopting and fostering orphans and running toward pain and suffering, helping to carry unimaginable burdens. Worship is not escape. True worship reinforces and sustains deep and hopeful seven-day-a-week engagement with this world that God loves. Worship gives us the vision. It gives us the courage and energy and hope to keep investing in this world, even in the face of resistance and discouragement. Worship liberates us. It enlarges us. It enlarges our joy. It empowers us to live supernatural lives together. Let's pray. Gracious God, help us to worship you even when we don't feel like it. Help us to prioritize our being together, our being in one another's presence, our developing a robust, shared life. Help us to prioritize praising you and growing in the knowledge and grace of Jesus together. And as we do, build us up and send us out. In your name, in your power, and for your glory. Amen. Let's sing.